Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Our sermon passage this morning is from the book of 1 Peter. If you want to open your Bible to that book, and uh, parents, you can dismiss your children now for Children's Church if you'd like to do that. 1 Peter chapter 2 is... Uh, our text, it's actually wrong in the bulletin, in the order of worship. That's, that's my fault. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 12, not 5 through 9. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Um, one of the uh, biggest questions facing Christians, uh, really throughout history, but uh, very much so today, is this question of how Christians should relate to the culture, the society uh, in which we've been placed. Um, There's a lot of different uh, theories on that, a lot of different ideas about exactly what that should look like. How is it that Christians should seek to make a difference in an unbelieving society, in a culture that tends to be hostile to the things that Christians believe. That's a repeated theme throughout First Peter, as I've been mentioning, uh, throughout this sermon series. We are going through the book of First Peter. The sermon series is titled Walking in Hope, and we're thinking particularly about how do we as Christians walk in hope through uh, an unbelieving culture. This is our eighth message in this uh, sermon series. And uh, this passage in particular here, verses 9 through 12, addresses this very specifically. And as a way to open here, I'm going to read from a a song by a a group called Beautiful Eulogy. Uh, The song is called Exile Dial Tone. It's the name of the song. Um, And uh, this is a rap song, and this is the closest you're ever going to see me rapping. Uh, I'm not going to rap this. I'm going to recite it. Uh, But uh, I was very impressed. Josh Hollowell actually uh, drew my attention to this. Uh, these words uh, are very relevant to the passage, captures a lot of the themes that Peter's been writing about, particularly in this morning's passage. So here's what it says. It says, we're part of a culture that really loves to hate us. Every chance they get, they attempt to isolate and debate us. And as if there weren't enough problems for us gaining influence, we keep fighting over the issue of what's too worldly for a Christian to make a difference. So no matter how you paint it or politically campaign it, whether you water it down and drain it, it's really the same, ain't it? It's the same frustration, the same constant segregation. Christians living like aliens, trying to relate with citizens of a different nation. It just captures so well with the position that we're in as Christians in the year 2014 in the United States of America. The, the song captures this, this frustration, and, and maybe you've felt that, the frustration of being a Christian in this world, feeling like we've been isolated and that everything we say is debated, that we're rejected by the world. And that's led in some circles, and among some Christians anyway, to a kind of a segregation. The way a lot of Christians respond to what's happening in our world is to adopt a posture of suspicion about the culture, resentment toward the world, 
anger, defensiveness, combativeness, and even a spirit of maybe retaliation, particularly after last Sunday's sermon where we heard about the persecution of Christians throughout the world. It might be the inclination of some of us to figure out how can we rise up and retaliate and get revenge on the world for all the pain that it's inflicting on us as God's people. The question this morning is, is is that how we're to relate to the world? Should we be segregated from the world? Should, Should we be retaliating against the world? Should we be adopting this posture of suspicion and resentment? And I think Peter would say, no, that's that's not the approach we should take. So let's listen to hear what uh, Peter has to say. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. If you have that, please rise for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God in heaven, would you please send your spirit to open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts to receive with faith what you have to say to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Really the theme here that I'm going to emphasize this morning is how it is that we make a difference. It was even captured there in in these lyrics. We keep fighting over the issue of what's too worldly for a Christian to make a difference. How is it that we make a difference in this world as Christians? And there's just two points here this morning. And the first one is that you must know who you are. And then secondly, we're going to consider that you must know how to act. Just two very simple points. It's how we make a difference. Starts with this. You must know who you are. Are. I mean, that's very important, isn't it, in pretty much any situation to, to know your identity, to, to know what you're about, to know what you're called to do. I mean, if you wanted to put a new roof on your house and your accountant came over to do the job, or if you wanted to get a, well, you wouldn't want to get a root canal, but if you needed to get a root canal and, and your plumber was there to do the job, I mean, you would say, wait a minute, um, I think there's a problem here. I don't think you guys know who you are. I don't think you know what you're called to do. I don't think you know your responsibility and duties. Well, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are God's people on earth. So what does that mean for us? Do we know who we are? What does God have us in this place to be? And what Peter does is he gives us at least four descriptions here about who we are as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ. The first is this. He says we're a chosen race. You see that? Verse 9, you are a chosen race. What this means is that from before the foundation of the world, God in His mercy and grace set His heart on a people 
that he planned to redeem in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God made a decision to elect us to belong to him. Now, this is essential, essential to our understanding of grace. A lot of debate about God choosing and how he does that, predestination, all of those terms come to mind, but here's what you need to understand about this. It's essential to the notion of grace. It's that God didn't choose us based on anything in us. He chose us based on something in Him, an attitude, a posture of grace and mercy and love, a posture and an inclination to extend mercy to undeserving sinners. It's something in God or something in His pleasure and His will and His desire that is the ultimate reason why we belong to Him. He's chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a lot of objections maybe to that, but here's one of the objections that come when we talk about being chosen, and and that is that some people say, well, if you think of yourself as chosen, that's going to result in pride. You're going to think that you're superior to everybody else. I mean, you're going to think you're the chosen one. I mean, typically, don't we use that term to describe people who have a a pride problem? You know, you think you're the chosen one, we say. And we see that as a negative thing. The problem that people see with this is that we think we're the chosen ones, that we're just going to kind of, you know, have this attitude of condescension and self-righteousness with regard to the world. But, But that's not at all. God means, what the Bible means when it talks about being chosen. I mean, just as an example, think back to Genesis chapter 12. We have maybe the first example, explicit example in the Bible of someone who is is chosen, and that's Abraham. Do you remember that? God comes, and He chooses Abraham out of the world. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was not a godly man at the time. God chose Abraham out of the world. Abraham wasn't seeking God. God sought Abraham and chose him. And from Abraham, God intended to build this nation of Israel from whom would come the Messiah. But remember what God says about the purpose for which God chose Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God chooses Abraham so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The reason God chose Abraham is so that he could use Abraham to bless the world. Not to call Abraham out of the world so he could flee from the world and feel superior to the world, but so that he could bless the world. That's ultimately one of the major purposes of God's choice of us as his people. There's a certain responsibility attached to being chosen by God. To be chosen by God is not an excuse for complacency. There's a responsibility now for us as God's chosen people to reach out to the nations, just like with Abraham. Well, what else do we see? We are also a royal priesthood, it says in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's the next phrase that Peter uses here. He's quoting here from Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6. Uh, He also quotes here from Isaiah 43, the passage that Pastor Brian read a moment ago, and uh, very interesting here that what Peter's doing is taking these phrases that were used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, and Peter's taking these, and now he's applying them to the church. He's saying Israel was the Old Testament people of God, but now 
that designation has changed and now is applied to the church of Jesus Christ. That's part of what's going on here. So what Peter is saying here with this royal priesthood language is that that description of Old Testament Israel now belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. We are a congregation, a community of priests. That's what it is to be a Christian. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. This theme has been showing up on a couple of occasions here in 1 Peter. What is a priest? What does a priest do? A priest is a mediator. A priest is an intercessor. Uh, Maybe a simpler way to say it is a priest is a go-between. The priest comes between two parties. That's the way the priest in the Old Testament functioned. The priest would intercede on behalf of the people before God, and the priest would represent God to the people. And so the way the people knew that they could have relationship with God is on the basis of a priest who would come in between, would offer up sacrifices in the temple, and assure the people that through those sacrifices that they could be forgiven of their sins. That was what a priest did. Now, that's changed now in the New Testament, right? Because we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who has offered up not rams and bulls for the forgiveness of our sins, but he's offered up himself. He sacrificed himself as the last final sacrifice to make it possible for sinners to have immediate access to the throne room of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, the priests interceded between the people and God. As Christians, we look to Jesus now, not human priests. We look to Jesus now as our intercessor between us and God. But what Peter is saying here is that still we're a priesthood. We're still a priesthood, that we are a community of priests, which means we are go-betweens. We are intercessors. So who is it that we're intercessing for? Have you ever thought of that? If we're a priest, I mean, certainly that means that we have this intimate access to God through Jesus. But if it's the nature of a priest to be a go-between, for whom are we going in between to intercede or mediate? And the answer is that we are called to go to God and to intercede before God on behalf of the world on behalf of the nations. We are called to represent God to the world, and we are called to go to God on behalf of the world. There's a theologian named Michael Williams, one of my professors from Covenant Seminary, said it this way, God summons Israel and also the church, by virtue of this passage where we're seeing these terms being applied to the church, God summons Israel as an entire nation to act as a priest a covenantal mediator between him and the rest of the world. In this priestly service, he expects Israel to pray for, love, minister to, and witness to the nations. That's part of what it is to be a priesthood. We have a responsibility to the world around us. Well, there's something else that we see here. You must know who you are in order to make a difference. What else do we see? We're a holy nation. Back to verse 9. Chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation. So what does that mean? Well, we've been talking about the theme of holiness from time to time through this series. You might remember to be holy means to be separate, to be set apart. 
What this means is that we are called to be a people who live lives that reflect the character of God and live in such a way that sets us apart from the way the world lives. That there ought to be something different about the way we use our time and the way we use our money and the way we treat our enemies. There should be something different, something that sets us apart because we're a holy nation. Now again, here comes the temptation. Oh, you're a holy nation. You're a holy, <clears throat> you're a holy church. You're a holy person. That, that just means that you think you're so holy and you think you're so great. You're, you've got, you know, we're, Christians so often are accused of being holier than thou. You know, is that what this is about? God's telling us that we're holy so that we can feel really superior and condescending about it? No. In fact, you go back again to the Old Testament, and you'll see God gives these commands to his people, Israel, but it was for a very specific purpose. There's a very instructive passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God is reminding Israel that they have been given the laws and decrees of God to follow. And look what, look what he says. Observe God's laws carefully, my people, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Even this designation, this description of us as a holy nation has an outward focus. We're called to be holy so that the world around us will take a look and sit up and notice that something's going on among the people of God that sets us apart from the world. And then one last thing, he says that we are God's possession. You'll see that uh, in the rest of verse 9. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. We belong to God. The Bible says we are the apple of his eye. The Bible says that engraved on the palms of his hands are our names. That's how intimate is the relationship between us and God. That's how precious we are to him as his people. But it wasn't always that way, was it? If you continue in this verse, it says you are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we haven't always been God's possession. There was a time when we were under the condemnation of God, when we were estranged from God, when our sins separated us from God. But God did something in his mercy. He sent his son to die and be resurrected, to take people who were once his enemies and make them his friends. We were once not God's people. He was angry with us. We were objects of his disfavor. And now that's changed. Suddenly, now, through Jesus, we are the people of God. I don't know what your aspirations are in this life. Maybe to be the best in your class, to be valedictorian, to be the, the best in your sport on the football team or in gymnastics or to be the best in your profession and in your field. Those are all great aspirations. Go for it. Pursue that as much as you can. But remember that the greatest privilege in all of the universe is to be called the people of God. 
That's what we are, Christians. Not because of anything that we have deserved, not because we have earned God's favor, but because He has set His favor on us. We are God's possession. So, here's what Peter is saying. You, you, you must know who you are. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's possession. Now, here's how I want to, how I want to apply this. Um, <clears throat> as we think about moving into this sanctuary, um, we need to be reminded, once again, that although God is giving us that sanctuary and we want to use that sanctuary uh, for the blessing of this congregation, and we want this people to be built up and discipled, adults and children and all of us, we want to grow in faith. We want to grow toward one another. But friends, let's not forget that that sanctuary is not just for us. God has given us that sanctuary so that we can bless this community. God has chosen us out of Yorktown and Muncie so that we could be a blessing to Yorktown and Muncie. God has called us a priesthood so that we can intercede on behalf of this community to God and represent God to this community. And one of the tools that God has given us to do that is that place. We are called to be a holy people, a holy nation. We are a holy nation. The reason, at least in part, is so that our neighbors surrounding this place will look and say, those people at River Road and 500 West who just moved into that new sanctuary, they are a wise and understanding people. That they'll observe, that they'll watch, that they'll notice these things. So, one of the reasons or one of the ways that we're seeking to do this is through this open house event, you've heard us talk about this, September 6th, grand opening, September 7th, September 6th, the Saturday afternoon, 1 to 5, before the grand opening, we're having uh, an open house event, and we're inviting the community to that place. We're going to invite the town manager of Yorktown, Peter Olson, we're going to invite the mayor of Muncie, we're going to invite uh, the Chamber of Commerce. We want this to be an opportunity for us as a church to declare again that we're here for the community. We want to bless this community, and we want you to be involved in that. We want you to be thinking about who can you invite to come and join us on that day. And you'll notice on your chairs nearby there should be a, a card, postcard, and um, uh, we're going to have more of these for you next week. We're going to have uh, stacks of 10 or 12 or so uh, at a time. We can give those to you and you can have several to use. But for right now, just grab these. This is so that you can remember about this day, but also so you can begin praying and thinking about who uh, you might invite to come and join us on September 6th as a way of making it clear that we understand who we are, and one of the ways we make a difference is by having an outward focus to the community in which God has placed us. So that's the first thing. You must know who you are. But then secondly, Peter says you must know how to act. Verses 11 and 12. You must know how to act. Now, I've been kind of saying over and over again here, you know, this whole situation of being in a culture that's hostile to our beliefs, Sometimes that's because of the gospel that we believe in. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's because we believe that sin is a problem. We believe that people need to believe in Jesus to be saved. 
We believe that sin is so bad it required the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. We, we believe those things, and we preach and proclaim those things, and sometimes people are offended by those things. But sometimes, quite frankly, people are hostile to Christians, or they don't like Christians, or they reject Christians, not so much because of the gospel, but because of Christians. It's sometimes it's because of us. A guy named Brendan Manning said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. Heinrich Hein, 19th century, I think, German philosopher, said this, show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Now, could it be that one of the reasons that people are hostile to us is that they, they just don't see a consistency in our lifestyle? They don't see that we're living in accordance with what we profess. Well, let's see what Peter has to say about this. We get two more descriptions actually here about who we are. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you, as he says, as sojourners. Um, another word in other translations is aliens, that we are sojourners. We're aliens in this culture. Our citizenship ultimately is not here. What Paul says in Philippians is our citizenship is, is in heaven. You know, there's been a lot on the news about the illegal immigrants, sometimes called illegal aliens, right, coming over our borders in the south part of the United States. And, uh, you know, these are people who come from other countries. They have their citizenship in, in uh, Honduras or El Salvador, and, and now they're in our country. Um, but they don't have citizenship here. Now, I don't know what you think of that. I know there's a lot of opinions about that. I'm not going to get into that, but what I'm saying is that that is, to some degree, a picture of what Christians are like in this world. We, we also, we're, we're aliens here. We, we are sojourners. Now, I want to be very clear here that the tension here, when we think of us as aliens or sojourners, the, the tension, friends, is not, it's not between us and life on this earth. See, a lot of people will read this and say, yeah, we're aliens in this world. We don't belong on this earth. That our ultimate home is in heaven, and we're going to live in heaven for all eternity. And so life on this earth is inconsequential and unimportant because we're aliens here. That's, that's not what Peter means here because we are meant for this earth. That's why God created us and put us on the earth. That's why when Jesus comes again, we're going to live on a glorified, redeemed new earth for all eternity. We are called to be earthly people. So this is not an excuse then to, to uh, flee from the world. The, the, the tension exists between us, again, and the culture, the, the spirit of the air, the, the value system of this world, the lust of the flesh and the pride of of life that exists in unbelieving life. That's what we're in tension with, but not life on the earth. I think that's important to understand for the point I'm trying to make here about making a difference. We are called to make a difference on this earth. But then Peter goes on. We are sojourners, and we're also exiles. There's that word again. Peter's used it a couple times before. Some other translations say strangers. We're exiles. We're, we're strangers in this place. Very 
closely tied to being an alien. We're, we're strangers. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been a stranger? Where you've been a stranger to a new place? I mean, when Mary and I went to St. Louis in 1999 so I could go to seminary, you know, we'd never lived anyplace else. We got to St. Louis. It was a new neighborhood, meeting new people, and we were strangers there, and we felt like strangers. And you know what it's probably like. You've moved into a new town, or you go to a new school, or you come to a new church, and you feel like a stranger. One thing that's almost always true of a stranger is that they're watched. Isn't that true? I mean, I, I wish that weren't true. I wish that strangers you know, weren't made to feel more uncomfortable than they already are. But it's just our nature. You know it. When you see someone who, wait a minute, I've never seen that person. You, you watch that person. You've got your eye on him or her. And what Peter's saying here is that in this world, we are exiles, we, we are strangers. It's like what Peter's concerned about is what does the world see when they watch us as strangers in this world? What do they notice? What do they see? That's important to Peter. And so that's why he goes on and he says, okay, here's some things you got to know about how to act. First of all, indeed, how we act in, in our deeds. Look at verse 11. He says, beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from this uncurbed, unrestrained desire that rules you. You need to exercise self-control. Well, what are the, uh, the deeds of the flesh or the uh, passions of the flesh that Peter's talking about? Well, if we go to Galatians, Paul tells us the acts of the flesh, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and this isn't even an exhaustive list, and the like and a lot of other things like this. These are the deeds of the flesh, and what, Paul, or what Peter here is saying is abstain from these things. Why? Because they wage war against your soul, because it's bad for you. These are soul-destroying activities. They weaken your defenses against temptation. They dry up your passion for Jesus. They will destroy you. If you engage in these things in an ongoing basis. So, Peter's concerned about this. Here's what you need to do, people of God. You need to exercise self-control in these things. But then he goes on in verse 12, and he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So, here's how he's talking about how to act. Here's how you make a difference. It's in how you act among the Gentiles. By Gentiles, it doesn't necessarily mean just non-Jews. It means unbelievers. It means people outside the church. When you're among unbelievers, keep your conduct honorable. And this is just a re repetition of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Let your, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So notice there's an assumption here that there's some relationships that you have with unbelievers. You're among the Gentiles, that you're in a place where they can witness your life and see how you live. Well, why? Why do you have to keep your conduct honorable in this case? Well, look at verse 12 again. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
So, I've been telling you that Peter's readers have been suffering verbal abuse from their culture. Do you know what Christians were accused of at this time in the first century? There were a number of accusations lodged against Christians. One is that they were atheists because Christians wouldn't believe in the pantheon of gods that others worshipped. Christians said there's one God, it's Jesus Christ, it's not all these other gods. So by virtue of denying these other gods, people said you guys are atheists. Christians were accused of being anti-family because they talked about brothers and sisters in Christ, and people interpret that to say, oh, you've got brothers and sisters in your church, that means you don't care about your brothers and sisters in your biological family. You're anti-family. The world would say, you guys are cannibals, cannibals, because we would talk about coming to the Lord's Supper and feeding on the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this accusation was made against Christians. You guys are cannibals. Now, I don't think we're called cannibals today. No one's ever called me a cannibal. Probably no one's called you a cannibal. But they might call you other things. They might speak against you in other ways today. If you're a Christian, you might be called a bigot. You might be called narrow-minded. You might be called hateful. You might be called a sexist. People might say you're pro-slavery. People might say you're a homophobe. People might say you're downright evil. They might say you're evil because you believe in Jesus Christ. Those are the kinds of things that might be spoken against you. Peter's readers were dealing with that situation. People were speaking against them as evil doers. So keep your, honorable con- keep your conduct honorable as you live in this world, as people are slandering you and saying these things. Well, why? What's the ultimate purpose of this? Well, look at verse 12, at the end of verse 12. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what I think Peter means here, is that there are going to be people who have watched your life and they have been slandering you, and they've been giving you a hard time because you're a Christian, but they've been watching you. They've been paying attention, and they see how eager you are to forgive, how quick you are to confess sins to others, how generous you are with your money, how hospitable you are to all kinds of people in your home. They see how committed you are to sexual purity. They've been watching these things and noting them, And I think what Peter means here is that the day will come for some of those people when on the day of visitation, when Jesus comes again, that it will be revealed that those people have become Christians and that they are going to be right there with you on the final day giving glory to God for saving them through Jesus Christ. And one of the means by which that will have happened is that they saw the way you lived and they were intrigued and they were drawn to you and that eventually led to their conversion. I think that's what Peter means here. That's why we're to keep our conduct honorable. But it's not just in deed, it's in word too. So one last thing here, if we back up a little bit in verse 9, notice what Peter says. <clears throat> Going back to this description, we're a priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. People will watch you. They might be drawn to you. They might be impressed by you, but no one's going to be a Christian unless you tell them about Jesus, unless you proclaim the excellencies of this great God who took you 
out of darkness and brought you into light through the power of the gospel. So both those things are part of how we act in this world. We keep our conduct honorable, and we're prepared to open our mouths. Now let me just close by sharing this um, story with you, which is a really good example of how uh, this, this works. This was a, uh, <clears throat> an article in the New York Times in the, uh, March 2011, and it's an article about uh, a man named William Stunts. This is the New York Times, and um, it's just a short article, and it says, uh, The Collapse of American Criminal Justice by William Stunts, that's the name of a book, by William Stunts to be published this year is the capstone to the career of one of the most influential legal scholars of the past generation. He died last week at age 52, one of the most influential legal scholars. And they go on, they talk about his um, career in law, and then it says, um, uh, his defiance of easy labeling on the left or the right was unusual among scholars of crime and punishment, but it was eclipsed by his other anomalies. The most dramatic was religion. As a Harvard Law School professor, it was his secondary field, Christianity, that most set him apart. It grew out of his faith as an evangelical Christian, which led to what made him a rarity among legal thinkers, his unwillingness to see himself as special because of his intellectual prowess. He was a humble man, and people noticed. At Boston's Park Street Church in 2009, in testimony about the cancer that would lead to his death, he explained his faith. He proclaimed the excellencies of God. He described how God remembers those who are suffering, longing for them to join Him when their time comes. It sounds too good to be true, he said, and yet it is true. William Stunts, what an impact he made by being a godly man. Now you might think, well, I'm not a you know, legal scholar. You don't have to be a legal scholar to make a difference. In the classroom, on the soccer field, in the workplace, in the office, at the dinner table, you can seek to keep your conduct honorable. Don't, estimate, don't underestimate, friends, the immense power of a godly life. And that's what Peter is calling um, his readers to do. So let me go back to uh, our rap song here, Exile Dial 10. Here, here's the chorus. We are in this world, not of it, not to be scared and run from it. We shine light in the darkness. That's why he left us here, calling out to all the exiles, all the aliens, all the strangers. The Lord will not forsake you. His kingdom can't be shaken. Hold strong. The end is near. We are the light of the world. So shine on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for choosing us for such a wonderful privilege to be your representatives in a fallen world. God, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for 
calling us your people when we once were not your people. Equip us, Lord, to live godly lives so that your name ultimately would be glorified and exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.